No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Maria Sanchez, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So be part of the conversation. You can call in with questions at 888-627-6008. We have a great guest tonight. Uh, former Republican congressman, but first let me say hello to my co-host Maria Sanchez. Maria, how are you? Greetings from the West Coast, the Left Coast. Hello, Michael. Everyone's well. Thank you for asking. And Good. the family, your family, yeah. the Brown. Oh, everybody's family. doing well. Everybody's vaccinated, and some of them are traveling around, and uh, everybody's doing great. Mr. Brown just got back from Pennsylvania, and. Uh, so uh, everybody's doing well here. And tonight we have with us uh, Congressman Tom Coleman. Uh, Congressman uh, Coleman is a former nine-term Republican member of Congress from Missouri. He's a policy expert, an adjunct professor, and an advisor to Project Democracy, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization protecting American democracy from those who would do it harm. And we're so lucky to have him tonight. Uh, thanks so much for being with us, Congressman. Uh, how are you? Well, Michael, thank you for the invitation, and I am fine. And um, I'm glad to be with you and Maria. Um, you're talking about uh, your own personal situation there, and I kind of reading through the lines there that uh, we're talking about how we all feel as this pandemic uh, is kind of tra- trailing off and getting mm-hmm. back to to life as normal and i think uh, that is a very important thing for us to recognize that for the last year or more uh, this country has gone through some significant changes and problems and they're going to have some long-range ramifications so it's not just our political system uh, it's health care and it's a, a lot of other things so um, i'm glad to be with you and i look forward to a conversation and if we have anybody who wants to call and talk well, and thanks, it, and We should Go mention ahead. that it's Protect Democracy is the name of the organization. Yes. Oh, it is, is Protect Democracy. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I said Project yes. Democracy. I went to public school, you know. <laughs> well, it is a project. <laughs> Protecting uh, well, our democracy is a major project, so well, not a problem. Well, that's why we that's why we have Maria so she can keep me honest. Uh, and you're right about the pandemic. God only knows it's going to change us in so many ways. You know, uh, from the way we work 
to to uh, our as you point out our healthcare system and everything else. But it is nice. Don't know how things are in Missouri right right now, or in, I know you live in Virginia now, mm-hmm. uh, Congressman. But uh, you know, in our area here in the Washington metropolitan area, uh, things are loosening up quite a lot. And let me just yeah. say that that I started. Uh, I went to work uh, for Obama in Missouri in St. Louis uh, for the his campaign. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but the first time he ran, uh, Missouri was the last state to come in. It was so close that it took. It took, uh, I don't know, like 10 days uh, to finally figure out that he had just barely lost the state. But Very, I very got, close, uh, Michael. And, uh, you know, you, you touch on a subject there. Missouri used to be a bellwether state, which means that it could have gone either way, or it always followed uh, uh, a victory. In other words, if you carried Missouri, you pretty much uh, were guaranteed that you're going to be able to uh, become president. Uh, that has now all wow. changed because... Um, it's now much a, a very red state, a uh, very Republican-dominated state, and it's just 180 degrees uh, from what it was when I started out uh, in my political career in 1968. So a uh, change does occur, and sometimes it's very rapid, and sometimes it's significant. Can yeah. you pinpoint how it went from being bellwether to being red? Well, I think it's much like, Maria, what's happening here in the Congress. Um, um, it, it, it is, uh, it's hard to explain, but it started back, I think, in 1979 with the election of uh, Newt Gingrich to the House of Representatives. And uh, as we all know, Newt uh, it was a bomb thrower uh, in the sense that he went after the Democrats and vilified Democrats and made every, all of our politics personal. And um, that became the methodology of a lot of people in the Republican Party, I'm sorry to say. Mm. Uh, also, you had cult- a cultural war, which continues on in, in some fashion. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not the major issues that, that a lot of people de- depend on how do they vote. It's the, the smaller things, but the big things to them, which would be, you know, um, prayer in school or abortion or some of these, you know, issues that really light the fire uh, with people. And yet, you know, whether or not we're going to continue our democracy, well, I don't know. That's a bit different question, they might say, and they're maybe not even concerned about it. So it, it's been a long time coming. I served from, I think Michael indicated from uh, 1976 7 to uh, 1992 after that election I was defeated uh, so it was 16 years and a lot of things changed and after I got out I could see some significant changes in the Republican Party yeah and it seems that uh, you know right now the um, Congress has become so divided that uh, it looks like uh, there may not be any way to reconcile. I mean, when we talk, and in, in, let's talk about statehood, because you've just written this, this lovely mm-hmm. article for USA Today about it. But, you know, we've gotten to the point, Congressman, where I'm up there, and, and there's people saying things like, we don't have an airport, or we don't have a car dealership. <laughs> yeah, so we can't, you know, I mean... A bowling alley. Or a bowling alley. Yeah. How ridiculous (laughs) 
you know, I said to one congressman, I said 45 states came into the union without an airport or a car dealership. And I know this because the car dealership, because the car and the airplane weren't invented yet. <laughs> so we know for a fact. Uh, well, but, you, yeah, you, know, you, you touch on a subject which it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, and I'm, I certainly don't mean it to be, but I think the quality of the people uh, that have been elected to Congress is much different than the um, 20, 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, we had our differences. I always served in the minority as a Republican, but I certainly got along. In fact, some of my best friends, personal friends, were Democrats that I served with. Now, we had differences about a policy. Uh, sometimes and most times we probably didn't vote the same way. But we put all that aside and had some wonderful times and experiences uh, uh, with our families together, etc., and you don't do that now uh, because Newt Gingrich told people that they should not, uh, uh, they should uh, leave their families back in their district. And so members of Congress just come up here for the for the battle, and they don't have, you know, their their families are better. They're not involved with with trying to make this a better place to get along. And you really have to get along in order to get things done. And that's why we see that we don't get a whole lot of things done these days in Congress. Well, that's so true. You know, I was, when you were in Congress, I was at the DNC. I was a staffer at the DNC. And, you know, I remember the baseball games when we used to have with the Republicans. And we used to bring in ringers and, you know, we'd cheat a little bit. And, you know, but but at the end of the game, we hugged, you know, and we had respect. We had respect for the people on the other side of the field. and, And that seems to be, you know, so lacking right now especially with our issue let's talk yeah. about that for a minute if you yeah, don't mind. absolutely your, your article is about uh house joint resolution 554 where you had for people that don't know this was a piece of legislation that would have given the district of columbia two voting centers and a voting representative it wouldn't have made us a state but it would have it would have resolved our our problem for not uh, having representation, which is, uh, you know, at the core of our struggle for statehood. And 61 Republicans signed on. And since that legislation, which, which was, a was a 1978. Right. Give some perspective. And, okay. and, and it passed both houses and then went out to the states where it would have had to have been approved by, I believe, 38 states and only 16 approved the constitutional amendment. But uh, since that time, there's been several other pieces of legislation put in. I mean, I think uh, uh, five statehood bills now and a couple of other pieces of legislation to give D.C. one vote. And in all those cases, only one Republican ever signed on. And that was uh, Wayne Gilchrist of Maryland. Uh, who actually was on the show uh, a few months ago. But in all that time, we went from 61 Republicans down to one Republican. Uh, What do you think? Is there anything we can do, um, Congressman, to get more Republicans, you think, on our side? Well, let me me give a little bit more background, uh, Michael, to uh, why I wrote the piece for uh, USA Today, that op-ed. Uh, I I watched uh, the effort here uh, this year by the House to um, provide statehood to to the district. 
And it reminded me that, you know, 43 years ago, uh, I had to vote on a subject which was not particularly helpful to me politically, and that was to, as you just explained, give uh, congressional representation to the district, which would have resulted, obviously, probably, as it would today with uh, two Democratic senators and one Democratic uh, congressperson. So... Uh, I was faced with this as a vote as a freshman member of Congress. That's what we call ourselves during our first term. And I had a very significant opponent um, that I was going to be facing. And this was in July of that year with the the election in November. But I voted for it um, back in the day because I felt it was the fair thing to do, the right thing to do. And my goodness, I think our whole predicate of uh, breaking off from of Great Britain, uh, you know, in 1776 was to declare ourselves independent because we were not being, we had no representation, but they were taxing us. And so it's kind of what you all are doing and having been doing now for 200-some years. But that vote, uh, I went through and I analyzed it because every member of Congress is uh, given a a, a complete uh, almanac of what happened each year that they're in office. And so I, I kept mine, and I went upstairs and grabbed my 1978 copy. It's, it's about four inches thick. And I looked up this resolution that we're talking about, and I looked up the votes, and I was I was impressed, first of all, that in the House, uh, as you said uh, uh, accurately, that 61 House Republicans voted for the resolution, to give congressional representation, which was almost half of all the Republicans, 43% of them. And it passed um, with 11 votes more than the two-thirds necessary because that particular bill was was requiring to have it submitted to the states and be part of the Constitution. And I will say in passing that the Constitution itself does not prescribe how a state is admitted. So you can do it by changing the Constitution or amending it, or you can pass it by a resolution, which is what the House has done this year. Having said all that, I looked up closer, and I I wanted to see what my freshman colleagues, which were all facing the same thing I was, which was a, a, a new election, you know, after the first year of being in office. And, and 13 of my colleagues, including myself, 13 of us, voted yes. And that resolution passed by only 11 Vote. So we basically, our little freshman class, contributed to the success of the of that measure. And then looking at the at the Senate, uh, back in those days, we had very hardcore conservatives, uh, Barry Goldwater from Arizona, and we also had uh, uh, Bob Dole and uh, Howard Baker, who were you know <coughs> well known Republicans, um, as well as Strom Thurmond, who was an arch conservative from South Carolina. So. They all voted for it. And I'm thinking, yeah. how did they end up voting for it? And nobody in the Republican Party in the House voted for it this year. Uh, a similar bill, not to provide statehood back in the day, but it, it basically gave the same congressional representation um, in both bills. So how do we go from those people where half of the Republicans in the Senate voted for it, 43% in the House <laughs> voted for it, and now none vote for it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Maria may have her own ideas because I know of her background, but to me, 
it just shows that everything is so polarized uh, that they can't consider anything that would not be in their political interest. And well, you've got to put party second to country and to what's right. And that's, and that, that's yeah. what bothers me the most about this. Me too. And I always say that about statehood is it, that I'm an American first and a Republican second. There you and go. And so, you know, fair is fair. But Liz Cheney, case in point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... That, Go ahead, Maria. I'm sorry. I, I mean, if that doesn't show you that if you don't walk lockstep with the personality profile that is becoming what the Republican Party looks like, then you're persona non grata, period. Even when you tell the truth. It's different if you're Matt Gates and doing things that are nefarious and or allegedly or, you know, whatever. There may be reason to, for that. But Liz Cheney's greatest crime is that she spoke the truth. And, and now she suffers for that. Well, yeah, it's it's a whole different animal than uh, than we've seen before. I think uh, it's it's and it's that's why I'm devoting a lot of a lot of my time. I'm a pro bono to protect democracy, an organization which I am very impressed with. Of, of a lot of younger people, litigators and communicators, who are smart and are dedicating themselves to trying to save our democracy, and and I give them my thoughts for what they're worth and my activities to, along those lines. So I, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. I did serve with uh, Liz's uh, father, uh, Dick Cheney in the house. Um, and of course he went on to become secretary of defense and vice president. Um, and I'm sure that, and her mother, I know also because she was head of the national endowment for the humanities. And I was the senior Republican on the committee dealing with the jurisdiction over that organization. So, you know, uh, it's hard to defend. That's why I no, no longer consider myself a Republican. I'm an independent and certainly lean towards the Democratic Party um, because of all of what we talked about. It's it's a different party. And if we want to talk about why the Republican Party is what it is, to a certain extent, it's because the rank and file, the individuals, the people back home, the, you know, the grassroots level, I don't think they understand exactly how far these elected members of Congress and their governors have taken them uh, to the right wing. And I think a lot of people who just traditionally mark the Republican ballot uh, don't know, uh, haven't looked into it enough to see how different it is, because it's totally different uh, policy-wise and every other way than it was 20 years ago. Well, you, you know, in addition to that, Congressman, I would uh, say that we as Democrats, and myself as a liberal Democrat, we need to take a little bit of responsibility, too, because in 40 years of being a Democrat, uh, I've seen my party not necessarily go further to the left, although it has, uh, but we tend to talk down to the rest of America. You know, we, I think that's our Achilles heel as Democrats. We've got people that, that don't trust us because they think that, you know, we, we, we talk down to them. We, you don't need a gun. You're just not smart enough to realize that. So we're going to explain it to you. Uh, and they resent that as Americans. And I see, uh, and I wonder, uh, not, you know, to get back to Liz Cheney for a moment, you know, Liz Cheney seems to be out there saying, 
uh, you're going to destroy the Republican Party if you cannot uh, uh, if you cannot come to grips with this truth that you know the election was that there was no election fraud to speak of. You're going to ruin uh, you're going to ruin the Republican Party, and we're going to pay a dear dear price for that. Do you think that's true? Do you think this loyalty to fidelity to a leader rather than uh, a, a set of principles is really going to drag the Republican Party down? I definitely do, Michael. I think um, we're, on a, we're on a death watch for the Republican Party. I think it's um, imploding. It's doing all the things wrong demographically. Uh, they are not inclusive. Um, we know what the demographics of this country are, so we don't need to repeat them. But uh, mm -hmm. there's a, there, the thing, a thing about it is that we now have a cult of, Repu of Republican Party. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a significant change from having a political leader, uh, a traditional political leader that one rallies behind. Let's call it, let's say Ronald Reagan in the Republican Party, which was probably the most charismatic person that I served under with uh, as a member of Congress. Uh, but there was no cult involved with that. We knew his mistakes and his shortcomings, and we didn't always vote with him. Uh, it wasn't lockstep. Here we have the Republicans having, and this is beyond my comprehension, that the, the man who they have sainted here lost the election. And it was yes. four years of chaos, and I will say he was the worst president we've ever had, and I think he will go down in history as that. And yet they can't on their own part with him because they are afraid of their political so-called base, which are the people who who are in the cult, for sure, of Donald Trump. And I say this, it's not that important for you to be reelected by the base or renominated by the base. There are more important things in life than going along with a, a, a cult. And so, you know, it's the same old thing what Maria says is putting country over a uh, party, and we have so many people who are afraid of their shadows, politically speaking, they would. They won't do anything unless Donald Trump says it's okay. Well, this is not healthy. I'll say this. Yeah. So I, I'd like our listeners to know, first of all, too, Congress member, that you had this letter to the editor for USA Today published on Monday, May 10th. So we're talking about something recent. And Liz Cheney had an op-ed published on May 5th. And what she said in there, I think you might resonate with it. She says, we Republicans need to stand for genuinely conservative principles and steer away from the dangerous and anti-democratic Trump cult of personality. Yeah. And she goes yeah. on to talk about, you know, in our hearts, we are devoted to the American miracle. We believe in the rule of law, in limited government, in a strong national defense and in prosperity and opportunity brought by low taxes and fiscally conservative policies. That's the yep. Republican I am. Yeah, and, and that and, was traditional Republican. So when I, when I look around and I see, well, what do we stand for? And I actually brought this up myself when I was in a private meeting with John Boehner when he was speaker. And I said, John, what do we stand for? That was back, you know, what, 10 years ago, more? Mm -hmm. and, and because it doesn't appear that all we care about as a party is to have the gavel in our hands as chair, as chair of these various committees. Uh, not that the committees ever do anything, but that they are called Mr. Chairman or Madam Chairman or whatever. So 
to me, you have to have principles. Uh, and I don't think there are any principles left. Uh, Donald Trump has no principles, and he never came to office with principles. He didn't sell himself as, as a principled person. And so you're absolutely right. The, the traditional, and I, that, I think you that's what I say, is a traditional Republican. Uh, there are very few left, I think, uh, that actually understand what traditional Republicans stand for. This is all um, part of a movement which we see worldwide. I mean, let's face it, the right, the right wings in Germany and in Hungary and in Brazil, you can go down the line, uh, are, are becoming more and more powerful. It's a scary situation if anybody studied history and knows what fascism is and what the right, right wing authoritarians are and how we have been able to avoid this in this country for all these years, and all of a sudden, boom, four years of nonsense and chaos. Is, and that's, of course, what authoritarians do. They try to throw you off base and throw you off balance so they can corrupt the government and corrupt and make money off of it, which I don't need to go into, but this is what we've experienced. And that's why I certainly, the Republican Party left me. I you know, didn't have to leave the Republican Party. Well, you know, I would, uh, I agree with you 100%, uh, Congressman. I went to India in 2019, and they have a guy you may be familiar with named Modi, who is very much like Donald Trump. And yep. uh, yeah, they're, they're, and you see him now in this terrible crisis that they're having. You really see the kind of person that he is. But yeah, it's spreading all over the world, this kind of populist movement, and it's very, very, very dangerous. Uh, so, do you mind, Michael, if we, I, I, I'm really interested in you sharing, Congressmember, why it is that you're so passionate and giving of yourself to pr project, protect democracy. Yeah. <laughs> because well, I, I, yeah, thanks for the question. I, you know, it is because I have three granddaughters, um, you know, and I'm concerned about what their country, this country, would be for them for the rest of their lives, which, you know, hopefully will be another 80, 90, 100, who knows, 100 years. Yeah. And uh, I'm doing what I can to, to uh, assure that there's at least an opportunity for them to have the same kind of democracy and freedoms uh, that we've experienced in our lifetimes. So that's really the motivating factor, and it's a personal factor, and I try, and when I talk to people, I, I try to talk about, you know, your children and your grandchildren. It's not for me, and it's not for you, but it's for your children and your grandchildren. And I think most people, even non-traditional Republicans, care about their grandkids and what kind of environment they're going to grow up in. And and so we, we're all in this together. We've taken it for granted for so long, and now we have to fight for our democracy. I don't mean battle in the streets, but I mean do everything we possibly can to stop the uh, notorious Republican efforts to s suppress votes in this country, uh, stop the dark money we don't even know where it came from, stop foreign interference in our politics, and all the bad things that have gone on uh, and get, have put us up to the brink. So um, in answer to your question, it's really that kind of personal concerns that I have. And how well, can our listeners get involved and why? What is Protect Democracy doing? Well, it is, it's not something that 
it's not an organization that reaches out for membership. It is, okay. it is as I said it before, it's, it, it litigates a lot of this stuff. Uh, it, 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 we had a task force on, on election crises, which uh, we started, and they asked me to be on it. It was about 50 people who uh, certainly were more versed than I was in election uh, laws and administration, and we had people like former secretaries of state, which are the leading ex- uh, election officials in states. We had people who were uh, with some uh, organizations that are t- were trying to make sure that the, it was a safe uh, and accurate count. All these things are, that have gone on. And so that was, that was a spinoff from that organization, and we helped the press understand uh, what was going on and how to report and how they should report, and by and large, the press did. They didn't call the election on election night like Donald Trump did. Um, and so they held back, and they watched, and they asked us what was, it, what was the meaning of this or that and whatever. And so the organization served as a fountain of information uh, to the media and to the public in that fashion. The rest of it is, as I say, litigation and also communicating out um, to public uh, via, you know, um, statements and releases and that sort of thing but there's a, there's i have found there's a huge uh area of pro democracy uh organizations and um if if people are interested and concerned i mean just go online and you can google and 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 find some of these organizations one of them's called issue 1 um i mean i could you know go into <laughs> google and bring them up myself but there's something for everybody if they're inter- interested, and you know I'm doing this for uh, with, with no charge and just doing it because I want to. And if you want to volunteer, you know I would say you know find out what candidate that you kind of like and find out what they stand for uh, in any office, and you know go to work for them if, if it's what you think that you'd like to see. And that was kind of the uh, uh, the advice that I was given as a young person. Uh, by a uh, pretty wired-in politico person. <laughs> and yeah. they said, you know, find a candidate, involve yourself with them that you like, and be part of an organization. I did that, went back to Missouri from, uh, and went to law school at Washington University in St. Louis and volunteered on the first campaign for John Danforth, who eventually became our attorney general of Missouri and United States senator, and who I consider a mentor in a man who should have been president himself. Wow. Well, you, you know, I agree with that. Uh, again, um, uh, Congressman Marie and I started this show uh, as a liberal Democrat from the East Coast, uh, a guy and a, a Republican woman from the West Coast to see what we could agree on. And we've agreed on more than we disagree on. And, mm-hmm. and and we come together around those things that you talk about, right? Maria's a mom. I'm a dad. We all love our children. Um, uh, unfortunately, my children are lazy, so I don't have granddaughters yet. <laughs> but I'm, but I'm, I'm trying to put tremendous pressure on them and make that happen. But, but you know, we really, we come together around these, these issues. And which one of us is not proud to be an American? I don't care yep. what side we're on, you know, uh, uh, if I've never, I don't think I've ever met anybody, uh, that doesn't think that 
uh, America provides uh, so much opportunity and and uh, so much potential for all of us that that, that it's really um, uh, one of the greatest nations on the face of the planet. Um, I have to ask you about this because this just happened in Missouri. Uh, but I don't know. Did you read about the new law that the, the Missouri legislature just passed to allow domestic uh, violence, uh, uh, people that have been convicted of minor dom- misdemeanor, I guess, domestic violence offenses to have guns and also to... Um, uh, say that local law enforcement can be fined up to fifty thousand dollars if they if they decide that they violated uh, somehow somebody's Second Amendment rights. Did you see this? Yes, I, I saw, I saw that, point. Michael. And uh, what the what the uh, Republican-controlled legislature did was pass what they call a nullification law, nullifying all federal limits on 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 guns. Well, you can't do that. The Supreme Court says you can't do that, and right. that federal law is a federal law, and you can't do that. Um, but that didn't stop them. And so, you know, we have you have these kind of things that uh, legislatures do in the states to um, get headlines, and um, until that particular bill or law, which is going to be signed by the governor, uh, is litigated again uh, through the federal courts, um, you know, they'll play around with that. But it's, it's, I mean, look at Texas. I mean, if you want to talk about um, Texas uh, and guns, uh, they have, they're proposing that you don't need a permit. You don't need to have any sort of uh, um, schooling and how to use a gun. Um, And you can have a gun and, and you can carry it, uh, outside or inside and you know concealed or not concealed and you all you have to be is i think 18 years of age uh you don't even need a permit they don't even know who you are so it wow. that kind of boggles the mind too yeah and it also boggles the mind because as maria maria was a gun owner i owned i hunted when i was a young man i had a shotgun i owned a shotgun and i think that you know most this flies in the face of what most gun owners want. Most gun owners want background checks, and they want waiting periods, and they want those other things. So yeah. I don't know. I how mean, I think polls have shown through the years that that's the case. That you're at, you're you're correct, and yet the NRA, and I know the NRA is having problems these days, uh, going through yeah, alleged bankruptcy and uh, all sorts of of uh, of um, shall we say ethical violations at the top. Uh, and so forth. Uh, they're not as strong as they were in the past, but uh, so many people, uh, politicians, uh, elected officials, uh, they they want to check and see what the NRA says. It could be the NRA has two members. They'd still want to check and make sure that we didn't offend anybody. <laughs> That's right. Well, and I should say my dad was NRA and a gun owner. I, I, I've used his guns, but I've never owned one. And it, But I don't have a problem with it as long as it's legal and not assault. It's like, and that's probably, <laughs> Congressman, why the senator and I agree more is that we are humans also and Americans, and there's a lot about humanity. It's just, well, it's not so common, but common sense. Like, mm-hmm. who, who's entitled to a right to bear those arms? 
that yeah. nobody yeah. unless you're in the armed forces you right. know serving our country so yeah. that's that's where michael and i have a, a commonality with what we think about and yes he's a democrat and i'm a republican and i'd like to speak to you about that because as difficult as it is to stay in the party i'm know that we need a two-party system and if the republican party goes away then what well i think that there's um a good chance that that will happen, as I said previously, and it, its place will be taken by uh, another party or more than one party. Um, and there's right now there's a lot of activity about uh, former Republicans like myself and uh, and um, people who are still in the party and people who've left the party uh, talking about what can we do. And, and Liz Cheney kind of ignited this recently, but. I think the the principles that I signed on to by this organization uh, were all the the principles that I can't believe anybody would be for. You know, if you're liberal, conservatives, Democrat or Republican. And um, so we'll see what comes of that. There's another effort called the Serve America Movement, which I have been involved with, uh, trying to start a new uh, party. Uh, It's very difficult uh, because our entire system's are set up uh, in the duopoly, which is two parties. Mm-hmm. And that's true in every state uh, where you have to get on the ballot. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people think that a third party is a spoiler, that it will it will take votes from one side, but the other side will get it, the two dominant parties. So you have to overcome that. Uh, we're not there yet as a, as, as a nation, but I think that there's nothing written in stone that says there's always got to be a Republican Party. There's a Republican Party in name only, as far as I'm concerned. They have the copyright uh, to the name, uh-huh. and um, it's not the same party as we talked about earlier. So it's it's really flying under false uh, pretenses in that sense. Well, I know that a lot of people talk about a multi-party system, bringing new parties in. We certainly have a couple of parties here in the district that don't get anywhere. I mean, you're either de- – well, actually, in the district, you're either a Democrat or you don't get anywhere. But – but the the you know you look at multi-party systems like the Italians. My father used to say Italy was the greatest democracy in the world because they let everybody run the country for six months. You know they would go <laughs> yeah. through they would go through so many parties. You know so many so many uh, governments. Uh, yeah. And uh, it never seemed to to work quite quite right. So I I have a little bit of a problem with that. But where do people like you go, uh, uh, Congressman, you and Maria and other people like you, do you just become independents? Do you, you know, do you well, want you know, to start? In, 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 our, in our system, uh, you are what you think you are and want to be. Uh, there's no, in many states, including Missouri, and uh, you don't have to uh, register by party. Now, in California, where Maria is, I believe you do register by party, but I think there's an independent line that you can also be a registered independent. And so something called decline You can state. vote in the other party's primary. I mean, you know, you might call yourself a Republican, but you know there's a good – your next-door neighbor is a Democrat, and you want to vote in the primary for that person. You can do it in most states. So from that standpoint, uh, you can do that. Um, Maria wanted to say something. It will in California we have something called decline to state, and so it's mm-hmm. similar to declaring yourself as an independent or no party preference. 
it, and that's about a quarter of the registered voters in California identify as such. Yeah, and, and it, I think you know nationally, you know, the polls say forty percent of the public uh, are independent. Well, when you get down and ask them, you know, an additional question or two. And they lean Democrat or they lean Republican, and it leaves about 10% left that are true independents in that sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, the pollsters know how to break this down and, and, and show the leaners one way or another. And so, you know, right now the uh, Democratic Party has about uh, maybe 5 or 6 7% more than the Republican Party uh, stalwarts do. But the rest of the are independents that can go, you know, kind of either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't have that system in Washington D.C. You, you, we have preferential primaries, and and you have to, you know, if you're an independent, you don't even really get to vote because uh, uh, no one has ever won the Democratic primary in the District of Columbia and then lost an election. When I win the primary. On election day, my wife and I go out and give donuts to the election yeah. workers because nobody's <laughs> ever, no Democrats ever lost. So, yeah. you know, we tell our kids, that's what we tell our kids, you know, when they went to register for vote. Register, vote any way you want. Vote for the Republican, vote for the Independent, but register as a Democrat so that so that you can have a, so that you can have a voice. Yeah, it's hard to see congressman where these ships are going to take us but obviously there's going to be there's going to be uh some drastic changes i think in in the electoral process in the not too distant future uh because i don't believe that 74 million americans are devoted to trump i think Mm -hmm. that you know there is still a core do you see that, that there's a core of the Republican Party of people like you and Maria who who believe in fiscal responsibility and some of the other core issues uh, that Republicans have traditionally stood for but uh, don't necessarily uh, agree with Donald Trump? you think there's enough of a core there to save the party, to turn it around? I think there's probably about, uh, you mentioned millions and that raw votes, and I'll just say percentages. I think there's about maybe 20 to 25 percent hardcore uh, people in the Republican Party who would uh, support Donald Trump if he said to jump off a cliff. They would probably ask, which cliff do you want me to jump off of? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the rest of the people uh, are either not that involved, uh, more casual voters, uh, like one or two things, I've got so tired of hearing. Well, gee, I like the way he appoints judges and the tax re- reductions and regulatory relief. I mean, these are the talking points. And one, two, three, and how many times you can say that? Uh, you know, I don't know, but that's really the rest of the party right now. You, the intellectual part of the party is is pretty well off the reservation now. They just uh, do not see. And I think the word conservative is being misused, too, because these people are not conservatives. In many cases, they're conservatives, not necessarily rabble-rousing, as we might say. Uh, so I don't know where, why the, the media pin that uh, on uh, the conservative label on some of these people that are so far right, but they do, and they did. Uh, one of the things that I've really been frustrated with during the Trump years is that the media uh, treats him like uh, any other uh, politician or president. I mean, if he if he sneezes, they got to report it. 
it's not necessary. And, and in our system, he, our media gave him oxygen for four years, and 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 able to create uh, the the civil unrest which resulted in January six. So you know they have played a role in this as well, and because you know all of the media now is really uh, for-profit media, and they want more viewers and they want more readers, and this is how they do it. Uh, I think it's they are beginning to see that one of the first things that will go if if an authoritarian like Trump ever is successful is the press. They will be gone, and if they don't recognize it, they're they certainly should be. Uh, understanding of that. Well, I got to tell you, I've gone to the Iowa caucuses for many years, and uh, when I went, when Trump was running um, um, the, for the first time, uh, he lost the caucuses. He actually mm-hmm. uh, can't remember. Santorum, I think, won. Yeah, yeah, somebody like that. Uh, I mean, and I he, don't know if it was the year Santorum ran or not, but. Um, yeah, yeah I, don't, I, I don't know about uh, Trump. I think Trump, because I was involved with John Kasich's campaign at the time, and uh, former governor of Ohio, and uh, I was with him in New Hampshire, and I was with him in Ohio, and in um, Michigan, and in Virginia, and Maryland. Um, and Trump was always in first place. We didn't contest Iowa because we figured Trump had it locked up. And I'm not sure. You may be right. I, I, I just kind of dismissed the Iowa caucuses. Well, you know what? When the point I was trying to make is that I went to his victory party, which wasn't wasn't a victory party. Actually, people were very, very upset that he lost. They were very, very angry. But mm-hmm. there were five times as many TV cameras at that mm-hmm. party than any other, than the people that won on either yeah. side. There were more people, you know, to a certain extent, I think the point you make uh, is is very accurate, and the press is they really help create the phenomenon. That, no that, question about know, it, Michael. That, that that's that absolutely true. And, yeah. and then some of them recognize the errors of their ways, and are some of his largest critics today. But you know they got him in office, and that that was the that was the bad part. But unfortunately, the press goes to the trough that is being fed upon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, if it wasn't generating ratings, they would have stopped it. But it, it, for whatever right. reason, Trump wasn't the train wreck that we couldn't stop. I, I, I don't know how many times people said, oh, what is he saying today? What is stupid tweeting today? Yeah. What is, you know, right. it's like yeah. we talked about that every day about what yeah. now? And I, I guess it was a fascination or, or a circle. I don't know what it was about him that got everybody's attention. But I know what you're saying. If the press hadn't provided the coverage, then maybe we wouldn't have been hungry for the coverage. So, you know, is it, it's the chicken and the egg thing. But do you yeah. mind, Congressmember, talking a little bit to us about what is the aggregate freedom score? Because I was alarmed when I read that on your Protect Democracy website. I'm, and the I'm sorry, the, the, the aggregate freedom score. It's it. it it's a new it's, one to me. I have I have I have no idea. I okay, because no it's on the Protect Democracy uh, website, and it says it shows that the our freedom is in decline from 2008 to 2018. It's gone from 94 percent down to 86 uh, percent. And I was just yeah. Curious. I think there's and I don't know, but I I do know that there are organizations that uh, rate. Uh, 
uh, freedom indexes, and it's worldwide, and they show, uh, I think I read it not too long ago, the decline in certain uh, countries, and because of what we've just been talking about, uh, the United States has, has in, in, in this index, has suffered a decline mm-hmm. um, in the last four years. So uh, I think they probably just posted that as as, uh, as news. It's not anything to protect democracy itself. Uh, I've never heard of them coming up with an index like that. Okay. Let, let me ask you, since, um, you know, as Lynch, uh, Liz Cheney, uh, Congresswoman Cheney has said that if uh, <clears throat> the Republicans can't deal with the truth, that's going to hurt the party because it's going to hurt their credibility. How about America? Do we need to deal right now with the issues of systemic racism uh, and uh, inequality? Do we need to deal with these as the root causes of problem in our democracy or or we're going to have the same problem that uh, Congresswoman Cheney talks about in the Republican Party. Democracy is going to have those problems if we can't deal with with some of these things. Do you think the well, time is? I come? think there are two things here, Michael. One are, are policy issues, which you just referenced some, and I think what Liz Cheney's talking about is there are real world facts, uh, and there are real world world falsehoods, and many people are believing the lies, the big lie, and the falsehoods, because they think that's reality. Now, I'm not a psychologist. I never took a psych course in my life, but I've been studying up on the subject because I think so much of what the answer to your question is, is it has to do with what's above the neckline here. It's in our heads, which is our brains. How do we function? Why do, why do people believe some of this nonsense, and why do others not? I don't have the answer, but we need, and I think that, uh, as I recall, President Obama had a multi-billion-dollar program to study the brain in the last couple of years of his administration. I don't know whatever happened to that money. I don't know who was supposed to be doing the studying and effort to, to try to do that, but maybe he was onto something that we are now seeing the results of, of trying to figure out again is why do people think the way they do? Uh, and it's you can see the same same train wreck, for example, and you'll get two different ideas of what really happened in that train wreck, and two two uh, observers that were there. It's it's hard to, it's hard to to have have a political system where you don't agree on the basics. And people, seventy percent of the Republican Party believe that Joe Biden stole the election. I mean, yeah. what nonsense! This is well, you know, this is crazy, you know, and. And so it is what it is. We have to deal with it. So I do think there's a role for, uh, for you know, trying to figure this part of it out on psychology. On the policy issues, you know, I think a, a lot of this is race-based. Um, I think, um, look, we have racists in this country. I, I'm not going to go much further than that, but we do know that we have them. I think that effort to try to suppress the vote in the South is just that, in a sense that they're trying to deny minorities, not just black people, but brown people and Asian people, uh, from voting. Why? Because they can't win unless they disqualify these people from voting. And that, to me, is like, you know, 
following your favorite sports team and saying, oh, wow, we won the ball game today, and then the next day you say, oh, no, you didn't really win because there was a violation on the 10-yard line, and you didn't see it, and the referees didn't see it, but we saw it, so we're nullifying that entire game, and actually you lost the game. That's just about what we've got here in our electoral system. Well, and if I may, though, just I have two master's degree in psychology and I'm getting my Ph.D. in psychology. And what you're talking about is called confirmation bias. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we take in information and how we see the information and we seek the information that we already know that validates what it is that we feel. So it feeds upon itself. And even when they, when we get exposed to information that challenges what we know, we reject it because we know that we're right. Yeah. Well, well you're the person it. I've been looking for. <laughs> I need somebody <laughs> to educate me on this. And uh, I think they've got my email address there. And if you uh, send me yours, I'll communicate with you on this. Certainly, would love and, to. And you, and and she's the right person to talk to. I would interject here, but I got a C plus in psychology one hundred and one, and I, I think I cried. I think it was a B, but they well, upgraded see, me. You were a I decent cried. guy. You cried when Running, you didn't get the, the B. <laughs> uh, we have a hundred more questions for yeah. you, Congressman, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, Congressman Tom Coleman, it breaks my heart that you're not a member of Congress anymore because I really, really think we need Republicans like you uh, to keep the to keep the Republican Party alive. And I'm a I'm a, a I bleed Democratic blue, but I also understand, like Maria's pointed out, that you need two, and you have two, that you need two healthy parties. So. Thanks at so least two healthy ones. <laughs> at least two healthy ones. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us. I hope we can we can call on you again sometime in the future uh, as as uh, we progress towards our goal of statehood, and we can talk to you. I, I wish you continued success. And at the end of our show, we always play a song we dedicate it to our our guests. And tonight we're going to play a song that was actually written for the Reagan campaign. Uh, Lee Greenwood, God bless the USA. And this goes out to uh, Congressman Tom Coleman. Thank you so much, sir, for being our guest. Thank you.